الحمد لله وكفى وسلاما على عباده الذين اصطفى اما بعد so before we begin the next session i i figured it would be good to actually spend a few minutes just talking about imam ghazali um because i i do think that um it's important to know who he is in order to understand where he's coming from uh when he's writing so and i'm not sure if everyone had the opportunity to learn a little bit about him before the gathering Uh, for those of you that have attended or listened to the prior programs usually I talk a little bit about him and I didn't do that today. So maybe I'll just briefly talk a little bit about who he was. So he was when he was born he was born in a city called Tus which is a city in modern day Khurasan or I should say in olden day Khurasan modern day Iran. So Khurasan is an area that's you can say northern Iran. Uh, Afghanistan and Turkmenistan and there's a lot of uh, Muslim scholars that have come from that area a lot um and so when he was yeah, he was born in that in a small little town right outside of of Tus but he was essentially raised in Tus and his father passed away at a young age he was only 5 years old um and so it was left to his mother to raise him and his older brother whose name was Ahmad Ghazali who's very well known as well especially amongst the mystics he's someone who's known as one of the leading scholars of tasawwuf at the time um so his father had actually appointed one of his friends to take care of Imam Ghazali rahimahullah his older brother so what his older what this person had done was he basically had them enroll in a madrasa uh, recognizing that if he's enrolled in, if they're enrolled in a madrasa then they're taken care of food meals education etc this is what used to happen back then but he quickly excelled and by the time he was around the age of 15 you can say he was like a full-fledged alim around that age uh, which was which is quite incredible and er, and around age 15 so uh, he uh, he went to uh, he he moved to a city called Jurjan which is along the coast in uh, also part of Khurasan and that's where he studied Shafi'i fiqh like very focused Shafi'i fiqh he became a master of the Shafi'i madhhab in that time between the ages of 15 and 18 15 and 19 or so Um, and just going back I remember I mentioned his brother Ahmad Ghazali rahimahullah uh, also a very famous scholar who you know doesn't get the attention that Imam Ghazali did um, but it's important to know who he was as well he was a very pious person um, it's a very interesting story this narrated about him and his brother Imam Ghazali from their mom just to and we're all parents most of us are parents here um, it's it's pretty incredible the power that a mother has over her children so she had to raise Imam Ahmad and Imam Muhammad who's Imam Ghazali who we're talking about and that's a very famous story that um it was well known that uh, ahmed um imam ahmed ghazali he would i'm just let's say that's not say imam let's just say um ahmed ghazali the older brother he would not pray behind imam ghazali he wouldn't pray behind him because he was a very spiritual person and imam ghazali especially prior to his going away and coming back he was a very academic he was an intellectual he was an intellectual right he was a leader you know i mean he was a master of a scholar but he was an intellectual He wouldn't pray behind him because he was very highly spiritual. He wasn't it. He wouldn't do that. So, word got into town that you know, why aren't you, you know, people people would notice that this person is not praying behind his brother and his brother is like the f- leading scholar of our time and he's not praying behind him. So, Imam Ghazali, he went to his mom and complained, "Hey, where else are you going to go?" and said, "Hey, you know, uh Ahmed doesn't pray behind me." <laughs> and complained to his mom. So his mom told Ahmed, you know, what what's wrong? You should pray behind him. Pray behind him. So he listened to his mom. He's finally pray behind him. So one time in salah Imam Ghazali is leading and Ahmed is uh, praying behind him and then he prays one rak'ah and then stands up second rak'ah starts and uh, he breaks the salah and he walks away. Right? He breaks the salah and he walks away. 
And, and people kind of noticed. So we got back to his mom, and his mom called both of them uh, and said, like, what's going on here? You know, why did you get up and walk away and, and, and leave? So again, he's a very highly spiritual person, but you can never be more, you can never outdo your mom. Okay, so just, just follow the story. So he said, you know, um, Imam Ghazali, when he, he said, when uh, my brother Muhammad was praying, um, I stayed in the salah until I, saw, until I perceived that his heart had become distracted. And once his mind was off the salah, I figured the spiritual salah was, was already broken, so I walked away and I didn't finish praying. So mom, they asked, mom asked, like, uh, Imam Ghazali, is that true? Like, were you focused in your prayer? And you got to remember, like, this is pre, you know, conversion of Imam Ghazali where he completely just, you know, he writes, he's a master of writing about khushur and prayer. This is, you know, before. So he said, you know, he's right. I was actually thinking in my own mind, I was, <laughs> I was reviewing the masala, it was related to hayd, right? <laughs> and, and anyone that's ever studied that topic will know that it's, it, it will give you a headache, it'll make your head spin, right? There's no, I mean, there's this, the, it's this really complicated subject, topic. So, uh, um, so basically the female cycle. So uh, he said, yeah, the first, the, so the first arka, I was, you know, I was focused, and the second arka, I went to that. So then uh, he, so she goes back to his mother, and then she says, look at the two sons that I have. Uh, you know, one son uh, can't focus in his prayer. He's sitting here and calculating masail of different, of a, of a madhab. Uh, you know, look, look at the look at look at who, what kind of a son do I have? And I said, look at the other son. He's more focused on what the concentration of his brother is that he neglected his own concentration and he broke his salah and left. Right? Subhanallah. I mean, you just can't outsmart the mom, right? So, anyways, so Imam Ghazali by the age of eighteen, nineteen, became a master of the Shafi'i Madhab, and then he moved to uh, an era. He moved. He came back to a place called to the to Thus, where he was kind of born and raised. Uh, and on his way back, there's a very famous story when he was walking, when he was coming back with a caravan from Jurjan back to Thus, 18, 19 years old, these group of highway robbers basically just overtook them. Um, and it's famously known that he had a book, a, a bag, or a sack, you could say, in which his books were contained. That, and all of what he had mastered in the Shafi'i Madhab were in those books. So the thief took that bag as well. Imam Ghazali chases after him and says, where are you going? Uh, I need that bag. So he said, why do you need this bag? He said, I really need this bag. You know, what's in here is really important. So they asked him, what could be that important? And he says that all of my notes, ta'liqat is what he, they call them, those notes at the time, notes from the teacher. He said, they're all in this bag, and if you take it, I, I won't have anything. So, he's, so the thief laughed at him and said, oh, so what you're saying is that all the knowledge that you have about your deen is contained within this bag, and I can steal this from you that easily? So uh, eventually he gave him back the bag, but Imam Ghazali realized what he was saying. So he actually went back and he just memorized all of his notes. He spent the next four or five years memorizing anything related to, to this. And after that, it was all in his memory. Um, eventually, he thrived so well. He went to Nishapur, which is, uh, he, stayed, he stayed, went back to Thu, stayed about three or four years. And around the age of 23, he went to Nishapur, which is another city. And this place is very well known for its uh, advancement of the Islamic sciences. Big Madaris were there. Many scholars from Nishapur as well. Um, Eventually, he had come into contact with Nidham al-Mulk, uh, the, who was the minister of the Seljuks at the time, who were ruling, ruling the eastern part of the, the Muslim uh, empire. Uh, and he, they basically instituted him as the uh, lead or head or professor or dean of Baghdad University. Now, at this point, people were literally cheering the name Ghazali, Ghazali, because he was that well known. And he was, you know, like one of the most, you could say the most popular Muslim at the time. 
especially of the Eastern world. So there were two main centers of learning around this time, the turn of the millennium, like the year 1000. And it was Baghdad was on the east side. And the western part of the Muslim world, especially when it comes to intellectual sciences and universities, was based in Spain, in, in Cordoba. So this is, these were the two. And the eastern was all Imam Ghazali. Everybody was really thinking, you know. Eventually, he taught there for 10 years. And then he had this big turnover. He began to question, why is it that I've done so much in terms of my academic intellectual sciences? I really need to you know, go back and, and, and focus on myself. And then the story continues. And maybe if we have time, we'll touch on that later. So, um, uh, you know, he, he's considered the proof of Islam. Uh, Alama Dhabi has called him the Imam of the Jurists. He's written about 70 to 72 books. But if you, and we're not talking about volumes, books. So if you separate all the volumes, it totals about 400 volumes, 400 individual books. They say that in his adult life, if you were to tally up the number of pages he would have had to have written, in his adult life, every day he wrote 40 pages. In his adult life, every day he wrote 40 pages. And this is, he disappeared for like 10 years. He went to Syria in seclusion and isolation. He went to Jerusalem for a period of time. Uh, it really is just remarkable. So maybe we'll come back to a little bit more of his biography, but it really is important to know who he is to understand where he's coming from. Okay, so we'll continue. Um, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay, so he continues, O disciple, or O son, or O student, it is desirable for you that, so I'm fast forwarding, I've skipped a few pages, I'm picking out some relevant points. He says, it is desirable for you that your speech and action be in accord with the law, since knowledge and action which are not modeled on the law, i.e. sharia, are in, are in error. We know that. And you must not be deceived by the ecstatic expressions and outbursts of the Sufis, since travel on this path, suluk, uh, should be by way of self-exertion, severing the ego's appetite and killing its passions with the swords, uh, with the sword of discipline, and not by way of outbursts and useless statements. Okay, so I mentioned to you before that Imam Ghazali was someone who popularized the sawwuf. He's known to have popularized the sawwuf. Now, back this is about 450, 500 after Hijri, there, were no, there was no such thing as a tariqa or a silsila. These didn't exist at that time. There were very prominent you know, mystics of the time, in the early time, like Junaid al-Baghdadi and Bustami, Bustami and uh, Shibli, Allama Shibli, rahimahumullah, all these individuals that were very well-known, very pious, spiritual individuals, and people that learned and benefited from them. But there was no tariqa per se. That, that came much later. Maybe you can say three, 400 years after Imam Ghazali. Um, but what he did was that he popularized, or he made, I should say, he mainstreamed the sawwuf when it, to the Muslim community. He made it mainstream. You know, it was in certain pockets, certain people, there was a big separation between the intellectuals and the, and the mystics. And Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, looked deeply into the sciences and said that, you know what, this, is, this should be a part of every human being. So he made it popular. At the same time, he was very skeptical of deviant Sufis. 
He was very skeptical. And if you look through his works in the Ihya in particular, and even here, he's mentioning to his teacher that be very careful. Benefit from people that draw you closer to Allah, etc. But be not deceived by, be deceived by the ecstatic expressions and outbursts. Since travel on this path, meaning the true path of suluk is not what you say, what you scream, what you shout, how you move, how you... That's not what the sawwaf is. That's not what suluk is. He says... Travel on this path should be by way of self-exertion. By self-exertion, mujahada. Um, severing the ego's appetite and killing its passions with a sort of discipline and not by way of outbursts and, and, uh, and useless statements. So uh, basically the summary being that suluk is not the name of a tariqah or a particular club or a type of dhikr that a person recites. It's really a person deciding that I need to suppress my nafs I need to exert myself in my deen. And if I'm doing these things, then I'm on the path of suluk, even if I don't, suluk, even if I don't have a title or a name or a dhikr that I recite. That's what he's highlighting here. Okay? Know that the unrestrained... Now he goes on and says, Know that the unrestrained tongue and the heart that is rusted over and full of negligence and greed are a sign of misfortune. And if you do not kill the ego with sincere exertion, your heart will not be animated by the light of gnosis. Okay, this is important. He's giving him another piece of advice. Actually, it's tied in. It's tied in. Number one, be careful about the unrestrained tongue because this is going to be one of the pitfalls if you choose to traverse the path of suduk. You know, uh, it's, the Prophet said in another hadith, in a hadith, that if whoever guarantees for me what is between my lips and what is between the thighs, what is between the lips and between the thighs, and in between the lips referring to the tongue and how it's used, the Prophet says, I will guarantee for that person Jannah. Right? I will guarantee. So meaning using the tongue properly. He's highlighting here that this is a major pitfall. That any time we use our mouths and our tongues, that it be used properly and in the right way. The Prophet said another hadith, very powerful hadith. Kullu kanam ibn Adam alayhi la lahu. That every word or speech that comes from the son of Adam, i.e. all of us, is against him. Uh, uh, not for him Against him Not for him Meaning the default Of a statement That comes out From our mouths Is that on the day of judgment We will be asked about it Right It doesn't work for us So we should be very mindful Of what comes out of our tongue So he says Know that the unrestrained tongue And the heart that is rusted over And full of negligence and greed The heart that is rusted over And full of Are a sign of misfortune and if you do not kill the ego with sincere exertion, your heart will not be animated by the lights of gnosis. Look, what he's saying here is that if for us to experience the beauties of deen, the lights of deen, uh, the taste of deen, you can say, right? What's the major roadblock for that? It's our tongue and rust that's formed over our hearts. You know, Allah Ta'ala mentions in the Quran, Rana ala yaksibun. He talks about this rusting that forms over the heart. When the heart is rusted over, it's very difficult to experience deen. I mean, it makes sense why people just want to go through the motions of deen and check box here, and I pray Jummah here, and I went to eat Salah here, and I you know, went to the masjid once a week, and I read my... These are just check boxes, right? But a person really should want to experience and taste deen. That's where the beauty of deen lies. But that taste can only occur if the tongue is controlled and if rust is removed from the heart. And how is rust removed from the heart? Uh, it's a lengthy discussion, but, uh, uh, but it, it, it focuses on, well, we won't talk about that, but the heart needs to, be, needs to have rust removed from it. He says, 
Know that the answers to some of the things about which you asked me are not brought about through writing and discussion. Okay, so this is all tying in. Look at the context of what he's speaking in. He starts off by saying that, um, that there are a group of people that are deviant. And, and at that time, the, even today, you can say the majority of people that call towards Sufism and things like that do things in bizarre ways that are outside the fold of deen. This is still... This is still this still occurs today, and it was occurring at his time. So he starts off by saying, "Be careful, very mindful of this, but know what suluk is. Know what the path of the soul really is about. It's a path of exertion. It's a path of uh, uh, it's a path it's an, it's a path that requires effort, and it's a path that is hindered by a rusted heart and an unrestrained tongue." Now he says. And he says, and if you don't work on these things, your heart will not be animated by the lights of gnosis or the lights of ma'rifah. Um, well, well, he'll talk about it. So he, then he continues, know that the answers to some of the things about which you asked me are brought about through writing and dis- are not brought about through writing and discussion. Okay, master scholar, master teacher, master uh, uh, intellectual, and a master sheikh is telling his advanced student. Know that the answers to some of the things that you ask me, I'm not going to be able to tell you. Okay? I'm not going to be able to tell you. Why? I'm not gonna, because these things are not brought about through writing and discussion. Then he says, if you attain to that state, you will know what they are. If not, knowing them is an impossibility in that they pertain to direct experience. Okay? Um... The direct description of anything to do with direct experience is not furnished through discussion, as the sweetness of what is sweet and the bitterness of what is bitter is not known except by taste. It's not known except by taste. Subhanallah. You know, what he's saying is here is that, again, look at the caliber of the two people that are interacting. Then what, what he's highlighting to here, here is that there are things in deen that we know through wahi and we learn through teacher, through things like that. But a lot of our experience in deen, or our human experience, uh, sorry, a, a lot of, of what we learn about deen is through our own personal experience. Meaning, it requires an effort on our part of purification of the heart. It requires an effort on our heart of you know, abundance of dhikr, removing ourselves from unnecessary activities, etc. And what will happen is Allah Ta'ala will open the heart to things that you know, are hard to imagine. You know, there's, there's a hadith of Prophet where he says, وَالْإِثْمُ مَا حَاكَ فِي صَدْرِكَ that know that sin is that thing that causes the heart to tremble. The heart to tremble when, when, when you come across something that's bad. That sort of a thing, yes, we can learn about halal and haram, for instance, through books and things like that. But then there's also something to be said about the experience. And I feel uncomfortable with this because my heart is uncomfortable with this. So what he's saying here, it's important to understand that, not every, that a lot of what we gain is, th- th- there's an experiential component to deen. There's an experiential component to deen. In the same way that if, you know, he's using the example of food. You know, if you, give, if you de- try to describe to someone an orange, for instance, and what it tastes like, and what the flavors are like, and what the sweetness is like, and what the texture is like, and what a citrus, uh, what, the, what the experience of biting into something citrusy is like, it's impossible to do it. The person takes one bite, and all of a sudden they know, they know what it is. Imam Ghazali is saying you know, to a student that, like, I've spent a lot of time, and I've you know, studied a lot of books, but I didn't learn everything I needed to learn through that. I had to actually isolate myself, spend time, you know, work on myself, etc. Connect with Allah Ta'ala very deeply and my heart opened up in ways that I can't even imagine. 
You know, um, he, uh, you can use many examples. Food is an example. You know, you try to describe to somebody what kind of a, what kind of, how a car drives. <laughs> I mean, one example comes to mind. If you I don't know if anyone has or has driven like an electric vehicle and the instant torque that comes from putting your foot on the gas pedal. Right? That's not even a gas pedal, the pedal, right? I mean, you could try to explain to someone what it's like, but until you've actually done it and you experience that instant torque, I mean, there's no, there's no real comparison. There's no car that drives like that. Right? It's a very, I mean, it's hard to put words to these sorts of things. You just have to do it. Uh, and he actually gives a very, Imam Ghazali, rahimahullah, he gives a very interesting uh, example, actually, of, of this. And I'm not going to read it, because um, you'll see why, but if you'd like to, you could read it. Um, but the whole point, the point being um, that, um, uh, that, that, that there's, a, there's a particular sweetness and a ladha that comes with deen. Um, and it will want us to become more attached to deen once we experience it. For instance, the recitation of the Qur'an, for instance, prayer, for instance, going to the masjid. I mean, for people that go to the masjid regularly five times a day, and you ask them, why do you keep doing it? You know, so I, rarely are you going to find someone that says, oh, it's because the Prophet said in this hadith that I need to go to the masjid five times. No, it's because that person is going to say, you don't know what I'm, you don't know what I'm doing. You have no idea what I'm experiencing. You know, a person who reads the Qur'an every day for three hours, and you ask them, why do you do this? They're not going to tell you it's because this hadith says that if I read the Qur'an this many times a day and this many, then I'll get this much reward. They're not, they're not calculating these things. They're going to say, if you tried this yourself, you'd know why, you'd know why I was doing it. You know, if you did this, you know, you ask people, uh, you know, who did i'tikaf for 10 days in the masjid, you know, why is it that you, or, or umrah, for example, or i'tikaf, you know, why is it that you would go lock yourself in a masjid for 10 days? As much as you try to explain it, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to them. Tell them, you try it out for 10 days and see how you feel and you won't want to stop doing this. People that go for Umrah or for Hajj, tell us what it was like. And they try describing the sights and the scenes. The deen is experiential and we've taken out the experience of deen. We've made it all laws and he, you cans and can'ts and do's and do nots. I mean, what kind of deen is that? I mean, if we, if we desire to bring people uh, toward Allah Ta'ala and toward Islam, it's not going to happen by giving them a book of laws or a book of you know, do's and don'ts of what you can and can't do. It's going to happen by allowing them to experience the sweetness of deen. So he's highlighting this to his student. Okay, let's move on. So the next section, advice he gives. So he says, O oh, uh, oh student, or O oh, oh son, some of your questions are of this sort, and as, for those, uh, and as for those capable of being answered, we have mentioned them in the Ihya Ulumuddin and other works. We mention excerpts from it here while referring you to it. So many places in this book, Imam Ghazali will tell his student that, you know, I wrote 40 volumes, you know, Whatever you need, is gonna, you're going to find it in there. So you can reference it if you'd like. Um, but he says, so, but he continues. We mention here excerpts from it while referring you to it. We say, um, so now he talks. And I'll read this in Arabic, actually, because I think it's easier. He says, فَنَقُولْ He says, Imam Ghazali is saying to his student, we say, the spiritual traveler needs four things, right? Salik literally means to travel. Uh, or a traveler, someone who's traveling. So he says, قَدْ وَجَبَ عَلَى السَّالِكِ أَرْبَعَةُ أُمُورٍ There are four things that the salik needs. And he's going to tell us what those four things are that a traveler along the path to Allah Ta'ala needs. He says, الْأَمْرُ الْأَوَّلِ اِعْتِقَادٌ صَحِيحٌ لَا يَكُونُ فِيهِ بِدْعَةٌ 
The first thing is an authentic creed which contains no innovation, right? And he kind of highlights this before with his cri cri criticism and critique of deviant Sufis. He highlights that, you know, I shouldn't say that, but you can, uh, it's not, this, is, this is not his critique of Sufis. This is his critique of, um, there were other groups at the time, like Baltanis and philosophers that were bringing all these bid'at into deen and the way to understand deen. So he's saying the first thing is that your aqidah has to be very straightforward, very clear, and, 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 and not deviant at all. Then he says, the second thing that's important for the Salik, he says, وَالثَّانِي تَوْبَةٌ نَصُوحٌ لَا يُرْجَعُ بَعْدَهَا إِلَى الزَّلَّةِ So he says, the next thing, the second thing is true contrition, after which there is no going back to reoffending. So he says the second thing that a Salik needs to do is they need to engage in a sincere tawbah. It's kind of warm in here, right? Can you open the doors maybe? Get some air. So the second thing is a sincere tawbah. Now, this is important for anyone who's trying to tread the path toward Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, when there is sin that's sitting on our hearts and sitting on ourselves, it's like this burden on our shoulders that's not allowing us to move forward. You know, you can imagine a ship that's trying to traver traverse the Atlantic. Unless you move the anchor, it's not going anywhere. So similarly, uh, a person who hasn't performed a tawbah is based, and, and you know, if we haven't, we're all sinners, right? We know that. We all know we make sins. We all sin. So we're basically carrying this burden of sin on us all the time wherever we go. And spiritually, when we're salikin and we're traveling, we're basically trying to make progress and move from point A to point B, but we have this burden on our shoulders of, of just sin. So uh, the question is, how do I remove this burden so that I can actually traverse from point A to point B? Right? And that's simple, it's through tawbah. Um, so the Prophet said, that a person, a, a, a sinner, uh, sorry, a, a person who repents from sin is like the person that never repented altogether. So Imam Ghazali is highlighting that the second is that a person has to make true tawbah and not turn away from that tawbah. Not turn away from that tawbah. In fact, the, you can say that one of the first steps, you know, in fact, if a person decides that they want to take bayah with the sheikh, for instance, that bay'ah is basically a, it's a tawbah. That's all it is. It's a bay'ah tawbah. It's, a, it's an agreement that, Ya Allah, I am repenting from all of my mistakes, from my past sins, Ya Allah. I ask that you overlook my mistakes, you forgive me of all of my mistakes, and you allow me to take this next step forward. For, uh, next step forward. So tawbah doesn't occur just once, but certainly when a, when a person decides that they want to now traverse the spiritual path, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, tawbah is a must, and he's highlighting this here. So, aqidah number one, tawbah number two. Then he says, وَالثَّالِثُ إِسْتِرْضَاءُ الْخُصُومِ حَتَّى لَا يَبْقَى لِأَحَدٍ عَلَيْكَ حَقٍ So he says, the third is reconciliation with enemies, so none of them retains a claim against you. None of them retains a claim against you. I mean, it's a, remarkable. Um, you know, in general... The ulama of, uh, uh, the mashayikh of, of suluk, they're very careful about offending other people. And if you've interacted with them and you've spent time with them, you'll know they're, they're hypersensitive about this. Hypersensitive about offending other people. I mean, every Muslim really should be. But in particular, a Muslim who's trying to become closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to do whatever they can not to hurt or offend any other human being, period. Right? Any other human being, period. Because when we disappoint or upset the creation of Allah Ta'ala, we disappoint and upset Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala as well. 
Because the Prophet, the Prophet said, Al-Khalqu Allah, Allah man ahsana ila iyalihi. That the creation is the family of Allah, and the best of people are those that are best to the family of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we are very hypersensitive. We don't talk bad about other people behind their back. We don't, um, we don't speak ill to their face. We don't swear, you know, uh, about or, or, you know, call them bad names. We don't, you know, this is just not, this is not what we do. Not as Muslims, not as any Muslim, right? But in particular, he's highlighting that if someone wants to pat, tread the path of suduk, they have to be very hypersensitive, very careful about not upsetting anyone. And look who he's referring to. He's not referring, and he, he specifically says they're enemies. Even people that are, you know, you could say, you have a right to be able to, to offend, don't even offend these people. Just be totally like, you know, have, have the slate clean. That nobody has anything against me. That, you know, on the day of judgment, if I was to die tomorrow or tonight, no one in the world can come to me on the day of judgment and say, I want your deeds because you did X, Y, and Z to me. Right? That's the attitude of, of a sadiq. Then the fourth, al-rabi' Tahsilu shari'ati so then he says the fourth is obtaining uh, enough knowledge of the sharia for the commands of Allah the exalted to be executed then whatever of the other sciences through which there is salvation. So for, and he's saying those, so uh, many of us have a desire to study deen and you can ask what should I study? Should I go take Islam 101 in the university? Should I go and take some you know, academic course uh, about you know, Muslims of uh, you know, West Africa, etc., etc. There's many things to study. But he's saying for the Sadiq, the first thing is to study the Sharia and the commands of Allah Ta'ala that are pertinent to us regarding those things that we, are, that we need to execute. So for instance, if I don't know how to perform the prayer properly, then I'll study the fiqh of salah. Because that's necessary for me to draw closer to Allah. If I, have, if I don't know the proper way to make wudu, then I'm going to make sure that I prioritize certain things before I then start to study you know, more esoteric or more uh, elaborate sciences. Basics first, right? This is, I mean, you'll learn this in kindergarten. They, they teach this in kindergarten. But he's saying, learn the stuff that's absolutely relevant to you and your relationship with God before you try to learn about, you know, for instance, Muslim history. Because the, the, order, doesn't make, the order has to make sense. Okay, so let's, uh, this is the final paragraph. Um, it is related that Shibli, uh, may Allah Ta'ala have merciful, uh, may Allah Ta'ala be merciful to him, um, served 400 masters and he said, <clears throat> Okay, so Shibli. Allama Shibli was a student of Junaid al-Baghdadi. So he was one of the early mutasawwifin. Very well known. Very well known. Allama Shibli. So he says, I studied 4,000 traditions. Allama Shibli is saying, I studied 4,000 traditions. Then I chose a single tradition out of them and acted in accordance with it, giving up the rest. My tradition is referring to hadith. He studied 4,000 hadith. And he gave up all of them. He didn't ignore and neglect them, but he's saying, out of those 4,000, I really focused on one. I chose a single tradition out of them and acted in accordance with it, giving up the rest. For it, uh, for I meditated on it, <coughs> for I meditated on it, and I found my deliverance and salvation in it. The knowledge of the ancients and the moderns being all included in it, I contented, I contented myself with it. And it is. So he says what it is. He said, out of all the hadith, I decided, I found this hadith, I focused on it, I meditated on it, I found that my deliverance and my salvation is dependent on this one hadith, so I'm going to hold on to this one hadith and live my life according to it. He says, and this tradition is, 
that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, and this, this narration comes from Kanzun al-Umad, it's, it's one of the narrations, it's a variation of that. So he, the Prophet وسلم, said, work for your terrestrial life in proportion to your stay in it, and work for your afterlife in proportion to your eternity in it. Right? Work for your terrestrial life, meaning this dunya, in proportion to your stay in it, and work for your afterlife in proportion to your eternity in it. And then he says, work for God in proportion to your need of Him. Work for God in proportion to your need of Him and work for the fire in proportion to your ability to endure it. It's very deep, right? It's all, he's using like, it's almost like antiphrasis where you, know, you say one thing but you're basically, you're passive, aggressively saying something else. Right? The Prophet is saying, work for your, this dunya in proportion to your stay in it. Like, Calculate the amount, it's simple math, right? Calculate the amount of time you're going to spend in this world. Calculate the amount of time you're going to spend in the akhirah. And you decide where you should be putting your effort. It's up, you decide, whatever, you decide. I mean, you're, 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 you, have an, you have intellect, you have an aql, you have brains. You decide, you do the math. This is simple math. And any mathematician will tell you that, okay, if you take, you know, whatever, uh, one or a thousand and, and divide it by infinity, what you're going to get, right? Because the eternity is essentially infinity. So he's saying, you should work for this dunya in proportion to your state in it and work for your akhirah in proportion to your eternity in it. Meaning that 100% of our effort in this dunya should be focused on our akhirah. I mean, really, I mean, it, why would you put so much effort into advancing our lives here, which is what the rest of the world is doing? You know, for instance, you have the option, you, you know, Airbnb versus you own your own home. If you have an air, if you, if you rent out, oh, I lost this. Airbnb, can you hear me? Mike doesn't like Airbnb. Can you hear? Something went out. Okay, maybe not. Okay. Uh, you, you get an Airbnb uh, and you're staying for a weekend. Are you going to be there cleaning out the gutters, painting the walls, you know, uh, redoing the brick, you know, changing the vinyl, uh, uh, you know, sanding the hardwood floors? You're just staying there for a weekend. Why are you going to spend all that time and effort on doing that? Versus if it's your own home and you own it and you're, gonna, you're planning to stay there for 10, 15 years, yes, it makes sense. You want to make sure that there's no flooding issues. You want to make sure the gutters are in check. You want to make sure that the, the walls are, are a certain way, etc., etc., etc. So similarly, I mean, this dunya is just but a moment. It's passing by. And we're all just, you know, travelers through this world. We're all literally just travelers through this world. So Prophet is saying, work in proportion up to, uh, to however long you plan to stay in this dunya. Which means for us, the akhirah, which is eternity, is where all of our effort should be spent. Um, like the Prophet said, right? We're all travelers, or just wayfarers that are wandering. And work for God in proportion to your need of Him. Work for God in proportion to your need of Him. So he's saying, ask yourself the question, do you need Allah or do you not? If you don't need Allah, fine. Don't, don't, don't serve Allah. Don't pray. Don't fast. Don't go to Jum'ah. Don't do X, Y, and Z. Just forget about it. Just neglect God. Be an agnostic. Who cares? But if you need Allah, then work and serve Allah Ta'ala in proportion to how much you need Him, right? And the sign of a true believer is that the believer recognizes that we're more dependent on Allah Ta'ala than anything else in this world. That we are more in need of Allah Ta'ala than anything else. And in fact, the more I become closer to Allah, the more dependent, the more dependent I realize I am on Him. So um, he's saying, work for Allah Ta'ala in proportion to your need of Him and work for, your, work for the fire in proportion to your ability to endure it. Right? If you think that you can handle the fire of Jahannam, which is fueled by bones, if you think you can handle that type of heat, fine. I mean, you know, live your life however you want to live. 
You're saying you can endure it, go ahead and live it. So you see the, I mean, this is the Hadith of Prophet but you see Imam Ghazali inserts it here. He was a very highly intellectual person. I mean, he could outthink, outsmart. It was said that any debate that he ever participated in, he won. You couldn't outthink him. You couldn't, you know, in fact, when he, it's funny because when he, uh, one of his famous books is the Hafut al-Falasifa, which is like the incoherence of the philosophers. But before he wrote that, he wrote a book on maqasid, which is the, uh, the, the, the aims of the philosophers. And which he just writes and writes and writes. And then what does he do? Then he writes his book and he just destroys philosophers uh, that had entered into Islam at the time. So it's, uh, his, he, was a, he had a very cunning ability to just knock out everyone. You can tell by a style of writing that you can't challenge what he says. You have to just accept it. So inshallah, we'll stop there. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us to fit the benefit. Wa akhra da'wan. Alhamdulillah.